welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 27th, 2022, episode 207, a day late and uh, hey, how you doing? Glad you stopped by the corner. I'm in that kind of chit chat kind of mode. And I have to share with you a short little sidebar about this episode. Yeah, supposed to happen last week. Unfortunately, the neighbor's tree decided to snap at the base, took down all the utility lines. And as things go, we were out without power for about eight hours and lost the recording window and didn't get back to it till this Sunday. Now, the title alludes to a day late and a dollar short, and yeah, again, I'm a little bit late in releasing the show. You know, I had recorded everything on Sunday, and I really wasn't happy with the outcome. You'll hear a little bit later why that is detrimental for being late and also a benefit to you. Uh, Just leave that kind of little teaser floating out there. The title a day late and a dollar short my mother used to say that all the time and i have no idea what it really meant i did go look it up it had something to do with lost opportunity maybe it's a lost opportunity and then get the show out on time but by my way of thinking it could be a dollar short but the show must go on so hey how you doing glad you found us even we're off the schedule i'm kevin england in case you didn't figure that out, this is the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. In our little corner of the world, we talk about beekeeping. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about how resourceful bees can be. This is interesting. A not-too-endorsing editorial about a new beekeeping show that showed up on the Discovery Channel. Haven't seen it yet, but I've watched the trailer, and so far I'm not impressed. I've been rethinking retooling the training program that I've been working on and talking about over the last couple seasons. This is the last year for the pilot. We're still in COVID, but managed mentoring, I'm really happy where that landed and I'll talk about that. A little update on the cottage food law in New Jersey. There was a what conversation going around about Honey being exempted, now we have a little more structure to what that means. Raw honey exemption, I'll talk about that. A little surprise reflection on daylight savings time. Where did it start? How does it work? I think you'll be interested to learn a little factoid about that. A further featured topic on the show, I'm going to cover off a verbal version of a timely presentation that Bob Kloss and I gave to our local association this past week. It's a primer on swarm dynamics, swarm prevention, split techniques, and it wraps up with some instructions on how to hive a swarm. If you've never done it, we'll walk you through the process. It was a good presentation, and I think it translated pretty well here into a feature topic. There's a short update for the local hive report and then a little surprise in the closing comments about a bonus show that's going to land right after this one and following up what I just talked about a moment ago. I'll talk about the rationale for that and you should watch the feed this week for an additional show and you know 
right around the corner. Let's say we get things started. Let's take a seat at the round table and talk about a few beekeeping topics among friends. Round table number one, call this one resourceful little buggers. Every once in a while, an observation leads to a question about how something works in beekeeping. And over time, there is one question that bubbles up for beekeepers concerning bees and access to pollen, especially in the winter and early spring. Listener Ron Hendrickson jotted off an email to me and he asked a question on that topic. He wanted to know, where do bees get pollen during their winter months? His observation stemmed from a warmish day in January and is surprised to see, if I have this right, pollen being found and brought back at that time of the year. Presumably on some of those in-between days where there's enough warmth to fly, but not, you know, the break in the season where consecutive days occur and the plants are blooming and all that stuff, you know, the early spring. In the guise of trying not to sound cheeky, I wrote back to Ron saying that they'll get it from anywhere and everywhere. While most plants wither and die back to nothing in the winter, some remain intact and entomb pollen inside their little capsule, even if the plant is dead itself. I have walked the woods near my home on warm winter days, the occasional flying day in the center of winter, and watch bees ripping at dead plant materials in a determined way to get into what they know is in there, pollen from the fall plants. There often seems to be two things they long for. Some scavenge for pollen in water, especially if they can find a water source that's really shallow and direct sunlight in the wintertime. And once it gets to a warm enough temperature not to chill the bee when they ingest it, the water bottle bees greedily suck it down and bring it back into the colony. Now, considering the freshness of pollen, given the chill of winter, much of that pollen was sequestered in fall plants, and it remains relatively fresh. It may not be as good as an in-season, fresh-off-the-cake you know, pollen, but if you consider the storehouse of bee bread, I can imagine that as long as it's not spoiled in some way by moisture, mold, or other problems, this pollen in the wild is on par with what they have packed away, and maybe it might even be a little bit fresher. Another thing to consider is that it might not be pollen at all. Bees will root around in the mud, sawdust, cattle feed, if they discover it, plant debris, and for whatever reason, bring it back like it's pollen. I can't say what they do with it too much, other than I know they mix it with the resin sometimes and prop up the comb, and, you know, they kind of use it like, if you've ever taken a, this is a Kevin moment, you can take a cardboard egg container, fill every one of the chambers and pour melted wax in it and it creates that little puck and then you go through and cut the cardboard egg container up into its little pucks and you have fire starters that same texture that you get when you create one of those pucks is what they use sometimes to prop up what goes on inside the hive where they create the rims that they attach the cappings to and all of that stuff end of kevin moment so still, I haven't figured out what they're doing with some of that stuff, but you would swear it's pollen the way they have it packed in all over their hairs and sometimes even in their pollen baskets. 
The dormant plants, buds on the trees that were never opened, and other sources are out there, and industrious, hungry bees are going to find it. In comparison, bees in the desert go to astonishing lengths to find water. If you're in a drought-stricken Arizona and you use your car with the air conditioner on, don't be surprised if the bees find and take the opportunity to slurp up the condensation that forms underneath the vehicle. As to finding scarce pollen in season where there shouldn't be any, I think it's out there. And if they need it, the foragers are going to find it. Kind of like one plot line in the bee movie, but I digress. It's a fun question to explore, and thanks goes to Ron for jotting off the note for that. And, oh, Ron said that he has likely listened to all of our episodes. Congratulations on joining that club. That right there shows me the fortitude that you have for the gumption to get through all of our shows, and for that, I appreciate the support. Roundtable number two called this one, B Blah, the Bees Are. Not too long ago, we had a flash in the pan moment for beekeeping in the whole social media, TikTok, Instagram world where the beekeeper, and honestly, it was irrelevant by my way of thinking, a young lady had a moment of fame with the antics with bees and legit beekeepers were indifferent to it. And while I didn't follow it verbatim, it did bubble into the feed and you just can't ignore someone who is driving millions and millions of views and now are in the general lexicon of the world. You know, it's not lost on me that one of my videos was circulated into the general feed at YouTube and has millions upon millions of views. But hear me when I say, I posted that as an educational video for beekeepers, uh, just saying. Now there's a show on Discovery that takes the social media discovery to a whole new audience. It seems Discovery's found a performer that checks all the right boxes and they've taken the social media darling concept that I just talked about and expanded upon it tenfold. By the way, I have truly no idea that the two things are linked. I'm just kind of jumping to the leap that, oh, this is interesting. Do we have anything else? It could be that the new show in the Instagram beekeeper sensation lady, I truly don't know her name, just happened in parallel. I will begrudgingly tell you that on March 9th, Discovery aired the first episode of Bizarre. The show features, of course, a zany guy with a vagabond look from somewhere in Texas, working bees without a suit, and getting into all sorts of situations for our amusement. Throw in a smidge of dysfunctional family element, and what do you know? You have the potential makings of a hit show. Now, I have to say, playing devil's advocate, all of those impressions are from the trailer they put out and the narrative they presented for the show. In reality, the central figure, his name is Walter Shoemaker. He might be a good, normal guy, for all I know, trying to make a buck and doing what he has to do to put his kids through college or pay for a mortgage or whatever that is. Don't begrudge him that. But in some respects, I reserve the right not to go along with it. Uh, you know, they, everybody has the right to pursue their way of living but in my way of world my way of thinking in the world we don't need a jackass style show of chicanery using the thread of danger from honeybees as the prop for the joke like the other related story working honeybees without protection which is front and center in this show given what the trailer showed it's really not a good way to portray the craft 
especially in light of the location and the presence of Africanized bees down there in Texas. I have to wonder if Discovery is going to be forced to post some form of disclaimers about what they're showing and if their lawyers had a say in review in it. Out of a morbid curiosity, I probably set the DVR to capture the show and maybe just maybe I'll sing a different tune after taking in the spectacle. I don't have my hopes up. In fact, I think what's likely to happen is that this will be some kind of phenomena and we everyday pedestrian beekeepers, we're going to have to endure the summer long question. Hey, did you see that dude on the Discovery Channel? Is that crazy or what? Yeah. Oh, bother. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Roundtable number three, call this one from seminar to soundbite. Another year, another beekeeping season is upon us, and for me personally, it's shaping up to be another year of engagements for training at the local and regional level. Each year about this time, the request to lend a hand to beginner courses, to speak at local meetings, and yes, sometimes offers come to speak at larger events to travel to places outside of New Jersey land on the doorstep. I do appreciate the opportunity that training and speaking engagements afford. It's near and dear to my heart, and especially the fledgling program that we've been piloting for a little bit now with my local Beekeepers Association. I know that I've been talking about the program, which I have given the name Manage Mentoring, for a few seasons now, and while I'm sure it seems like it's been forever to me, I feel like the program is following what could be considered a logical trajectory, and I am in it for the long game. To the point of the name of this roundtable, I felt like the original content and format of the program under development is right. The premise that beekeeping knowledge and tactics should be taught in a right-on-time manner instead of the normal short-course style, which is to deliver most of it in some way all at once, it's still the right way to go. But in the two pilot years that we've had the program in operation, and more to the fact that COVID happened, it dawned on me that the format had borrowed too much from the traditional beekeeping course delivery styles, and it actually suffered from some of the same faults. Now, I might be this far into the telling, and you might say, Kevin, I have no idea what you're getting at. Yeah, okay, I'm aware of that. The funny thing is, I know what I'm trying to say <laughs> sometimes, but it's hard to convey what goes on in my mind. In the case of what I'm trying to get at is I've had a change of heart and decided to retool the program that not many people know about some, to which I will explain in my mind, the program content is spot on, but the session designs, I want bees to bees in a box, bees in a box, a fully operational hive, and so on, were a little too seminar-like. In seeing the structure of the presentations, and especially as I'm looking for the right way to deliver content, even if they were uh, ab abbreviated or structured well, were, they were too rich and too saturated. You have that moment. If you're staring at something that's just not right and in your gut, you actually know how to fix it. You have two choices. And in my way of thinking, you simply have to cut bait and revisit it in an agile manner and make the course correction or you're never going to be happy. From seminar to soundbite is a clever way of saying, I took the sessions 
that we put together and carved them up into snackable topics. Each topic leads into the other, but the basis of the course, which were slide presentations, are now in modules. And they're no longer the 30, no longer than 30 to 40 slides on average. That might seem like a lot, but my slides are very narrative sound bites in themselves. And I bet you could breeze through one of the topics in about 10 to 20 minutes. The beauty of the retrofit is also to solve another problem, conundrum, if you will, about new beekeeper training. New beekeepers are completely out of sync with a proper startup. I have recognized that we do not make acquaintances with our new beekeepers on most occasions until they are standing there with a package of bees in their hands. New bee suits on, bee packages in their hands. They tell us, I did some prep. I think I know how to install these. But is there any way you can help me? Because I'm not really confident in what I'm doing. In a perfect world, they would have come to us, say, in December. But what do they know? And in December, we would have filled them in on the prerequisites, what equipment to buy and why, how to put it together, assessing the neighbors, knowing the rules and regs that apply. And well, since you're a beekeeper yourself, you could fill in the gaps about all those things you probably needed to know or wished you knew, personal protection and such, before you actually had the package in your hand. The way I see it, the new snackable format will let them go back if they're late to the party and learn about some of the things they missed. And if they did it wrong, they could either make current course corrections and or adjust accordingly. Ideal? Nope, not in the least bit. But if they can find the things that are landmines and go back to solve some of their problems or make those course corrections, as I said, and in a lot of instances, they are in the know of what they missed, they can take the measures to do something about it. Now, I hate that the program is often in a state of patching, but it has good bones, and I'm confident that I'm pretty far along. As to its implementation, yeah, we're in another COVID year, and our association had an exec meeting just a little bit ago and discussed our tactics for this year. They're going to start out with remote programs like the last two years. This is not so much to reflect on the dangers of COVID, but more to the fact that obtaining venues to meet at on the local level are still quite a challenge for us here in central New Jersey. We often meet at places like libraries and schools. They're just simply not widely available for public programs yet, or they have COVID constrictions, restrictions that make them hard to lock in. I think it's okay given the retrofit to have one more pilot year. And again, I'm into the design of this program for the long game. I will say here and now that next winter, we're going to advertise the start of our program in late fall, early winter, and continue to do so for a few years. So we could try to sway new beekeepers to come in and do the right amount of prep preseason. Then if they show up with package in hand in mid-spring, we can point them back to what came before and suggest they catch up and everything is online and available to them. As I've said in the past, I'm going to record with the new format all of the stuff up front and you could come in and consume at your leisure. 
So the local training program is upon us again this Thursday. I am going to teach the first management mentoring session of the season. And I have word that there's a reasonable number of candidates in the wings. So I'm looking forward to putting through their paces again this year. Final footnote to the topic. I will be attending EAS. Hopefully a bunch of our beekeepers from New Jersey is going to be going with us. It's in Ithaca, New York this year, and I've been asked to be a speaker. I'll be presenting my alternative hives talk, and I'm thrilled to have that opportunity again and truly enjoyed being on the roster for last year's EAS Symposium in Kentucky. From what I was told, this year's event is going to be a regular, full-fledged EAS, and the show is going to have a very hands-on focus, which I think is cool, cool, cool. That's a ways off in August, but if you can make some time for that, it is the first week in August, and you really should look to join us as it is the perfect time to be in that region. The weather is going to be amazing in New York that time of year, and I have a feeling this is going to be an EAS to remember. So Manage Mentoring 2022, it's underway, and I am looking forward to seeing how the tweaks are going to play out, and I'm kind of hoping that I have it right, and that I can move into the next phase of delivering the program to a wider audience. On that thought process, I have notions of creating a web-based presence, a support podcast with just getting started that's going to bring the program for everyone in an episode format, and that'll be coupled with supporting videos, and who knows, maybe someday I'll put it all together to write a white paper or an ebook on the topic. All in good time. All in good time. Roundtable number four, Raw Honey Exemption. Just a few short episodes we lamented about what a mess our newly minted cottage law is for small businesses selling honey here in New Jersey. Regulations now require you to register your business, take training, pay fees, and be subject to inspections and more. Sometimes these things are necessary and rightfully in the public interest and other times, it's just a point of view that they're a bit misguided. A message came our way this past week from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association Committee on Cottage Laws about intentions for the state to make an adjustment that would outright exempt raw honey. Now, it has to be noted that for the time being, the legislation is in full effect and beekeepers should rightfully comply with the laws of the land. The reason that I share that is to set the tone for what I'm going to say next. As mentioned in the past episode, it seems that the New Jersey Department of Health is exploring the exemption and kind of inferring, in writing even, that they are walking away from enforcing, enforcement, I should say, of anyone selling honey. And again, this classifies for raw honey. Now, I keep saying raw honey, and I'll get to the stipulation in a second. The backstory is, reporting out of Atlantic City, New Jersey, a specific meeting was held, involved the New Jersey Department of Health and the New Jersey Environmental Health Association. In that session hosted March 7th, it was said that Representative Manley, who represents the retail food program under the New Jersey Consumer Environmental and Occupational Health Services Division, stated that raw honey is a perfect food and then inspectors should treat it like they have always treated it. Now, to be clear and for the record, that statement came from a recount of the session from NJBA, 
And it can be noted that as far as I know, it's not a direct quote from some recording of the meeting. It went on further to assert that he, presumably manly speaking, has no intentions of issuing permits for raw honey. I guess, um, yeah, this is all good news. It does support what we were hearing being bandied about in times that our governor vetoed the bill, but it would have exempted honey as they were trying to pass through. And hopefully in time, this chatter, as I will term it, will materialize into a change of the regulation and some relief for beekeepers. I think it can be construed this way. And the NJBA actually stated it this way in an email to all its members. The news, quote, strongly indicates that the Department of Health intends to exempt raw honey from the cottage food regulations, end quote. So there's a perception in the beekeeping world out here in New Jersey that if you went and sold raw honey and someone flagged you and said you're not exempt from the cottage law, you could send a note over to Manly and Friends and their group will back you up and tell the local inspector that there is no reason to enforce this for raw honey. That's the answer. And there was a second message that came out from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association that had a quote from Manley that mainly stated that. I don't know if you want to be the one to test it, whether somebody calls you out or not, but that is apparently the situation. Word, you have his word that he'll back you up on that with local regulations. Even though the law says honey is not exempt from this until they actually change the law. So we'll have to wait and see. And before I put a placeholder on this, you know, put this saga, saga of cottage law on the shelf, I have to come back to the insistence of calling out the product at the center of the whole topic here, raw honey. It should be clear that honey harvested in the traditional way, that's what's going to get a pass. But foods that are prepared are still on the table and they are not going to be exempt. If you take raw honey and mix something into it, it's no longer raw honey. Raw honey is physically that, one ingredient, honey. Any of the infused products that contain additional ingredients are subject to cottage law food oversight. Creamed honey with cinnamon, cottage food product. Flavored honey, honey candy, nuts, or fruit encased in honey, all cottage food products. A declaration was made that if you're selling raw honey today prior to any legislation change and run afoul of health inspector, there is recourse. And hopefully Mr. Manley will come back and back up the local beekeepers. I don't know about this whole thing. It's like being lactose intolerant. I still think it's cottage cheese, but at least someone's offering lactate before you have to choke it down. Roundtable number five, call this one making time. If you saw my Facebook post, I was supposed to record this episode last Sunday, but unfortunately the neighbor's tree decided it was time to find the ground. And on its trajectory down, it took out the utility lines, power lines, and we were without power the entire day last Sunday, so no recording for me. 
In the spring, as you know, we move the clocks ahead an hour, and in the fall, we fall back. Spring ahead, fall back. As to this concept, if you don't know the answer, you might postulate a few ideas as to why the practice is in place. The obvious answer is it was done to help the farmers. Farmers are up with the light and go to bed with the light, and at least the nostalgic notion is that, you know, wouldn't it make sense if we could align the light to when we're going to work? Then there's this notion that takes the light step one step further. If it gets dark early in the winter and we are sleeping the daylight hours away, naturally we have adopted to this as modern humans. Our cars have headlights and taillights. We can burn our light bulbs all day long if we wanted to. But again, look to nostalgia in the days of candles. If time could be tweaked so nighttime, in quotes, would coincide with bedtime, then you would not have to burn candles and lamp oil deep into the dark. You would simply just go to bed because, you know, per the pocket watch in your vest, it's nighttime. That notion leads to why Ben Franklin, yes, the U.S. president and inventor Ben Franklin, was credited with the concept after writing an essay in the late 1700s that suggested to the Parisians when he was over there for a visit that they could save money by not burning candles in oil if they simply made this time adjustment. Gathering that it's not the farmers and it was not Franklin, although time seems to want to give him the credit, then who did actually propose this idea? It was an entomologist. <laughs> yes, a bug-loving gent by the name of Gordon Vernon Hudson from New Zealand is the one formally credited with suggesting the idea. Which, by the way, was turned down at the time as folly because the watch and time tracking was conflicting with his after-work pursuits to collect bugs at dawn. And if only the clock coincided with the light, then he could sign off from his day job and be free to spend the twilights in the late afternoon running around the field with a bug net. How cool is that? An entomologist came up with this. As to if he's truly the one who suggested the idea, I suppose time will tell if someone else proposed the idea earlier. But the key to Hudson's credit is the record from 1895, where he presented the paper as proof to the Wellington Philosophical Society proposing a two-hour daylight shift savings. And that was followed by another written record by him in 1898. It appears that at the time, the idea was a little ahead of its time, so to speak, and it's said that the idea did not take root until a few decades later when the Germans adopted the practice in 1916 during World War I to conserve fuel. And that goes back to the mention earlier of Ben Franklin's idea. To my way of thinking, the time-saving adjustment adopted all over the world is usually just what it is to most people. The most ubiquitous commentary around the notion that you either gain or lose an hour of sleep when it happens. That's what the layperson worries about. They're not worried about farmers or bugs or whatever. It's sleep. I kind of like the way that Hudson stated in the mentioned paper entitled Hudson on Seasonal Time, 
what this is all about. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, the effect of this alteration would be to advance all the day's operations in summer two hours compared with the present system. In this way, the early morning daylight would be utilized and a long period of daylight leisure would be made available in the evening for cricket, gardening, cycling, or any other outdoor pursuit desired, end quote. After hearing that, who am I to argue about the daylight? It affords us to work the bees in the afternoon. I'll have a link to the 1898 version of the paper in the show notes. It's an interesting foray into the nostalgia and uh, just love reading stuff from that time period. It really takes you back. So daylight savings time? Gotta give credit to a bug guy. Topic number one, I'm going to call this one Splits and Swarms and Castles of My. This is a takeoff of a presentation that I did for the Northwest Branch this past week. And while you could probably at some point jump over to YouTube and watch it directly, I'm just going to go through this presentation because this time of year, this is a timely talk. It's an amalgamation of a bunch of different talks that I had and I compacted it all together. Uh, the presentation that we did Bob Kloss and I tag-teamed it. I did the splits and swarms and castles, and he did how to collect a swarm. I guess we'll see where the timing takes us. Maybe I'll throw in Bob's part here, too. But, uh, you know, what is the presentation about swarms? It was prevention and know-how, triggers, swarm management, and how to keep your bees from flying away. Then splits and castles was about how to make your splits to do swarm prevention techniques, different versions of that for your apiary growth. When a primer on what a queen castle is, but in a little twist, uh, not the conventional way. So let me go ahead and run that down. First thing to talk about is why do beekeepers always talk about swarming? Well, when bees fly away, that's not the desire. Uh, you don't want yet half of your honey force flying away and you know, some of it's, we're okay with it. It's a natural act and it's a brood break and all those things that come with the benefits of it. But many of us are into beekeeping for honey production. And when your forager force flies away and you have to endure a queen getting rebuilt in the middle of a, you know, major nectar flow and such, that's not exactly what you want. The other side of this is a lot of people are focused on swarm prevention simply because they don't want your bees in your neighbor's soffits or your chimneys and things like that terrorizing the neighborhood. So good shepherds of bees that we are, especially if we live in a community where you have nearby neighbors, you don't want your bees hanging off their roofs. Uh, in order not to have them fly away, you got to know how to keep that from happening Ideally, as a beekeeper, you are well-versed in swarm preparation by hives when it's underway and what to do to stay ahead of it. The first thing to say, though, is what is swarming? Why do bees swarm? According to the definition, I think I got this from Dewey Karen, it's the natural and instinctive behavior of honeybees to reproduce. Now, colony growth, growth is by the individual bee but colony survival is through the reproductive swarm of the superorganism. And so they have to swarm in order to keep producing bees for the next millennia. 
When I think about swarming, one of the first things that comes back to my mind is the little experiment we did for a couple of years here in New Jersey, where we ran a website. I called it the New Jersey Swarm Report, and we had everybody report their swarms. The data that we collected across those couple of years indicates that swarming starts tax day, April 15th in New Jersey. Give or take a week, but almost universally, that's when the first swarms start to be reported in earnest. You might see some trickles in March. You might see it lag till late April. But most of the time, in earnest, you start seeing calls all over the place, April 15th. Uh, swarm tying follows biology, and typically that follows what you have going on in the spring weather-wise. And obviously we can talk about that. The one thing to know about swarms, though, is they're not spontaneous. Hives don't simply up and swarm. And if you think about it, a colony forecasts its intentions through different mechanisms. And we'll talk about triggers and conditions that are indicators that swarm prep is underway. A colony that's prepping to swarm has to make its preparations in advance, and it usually does that 10 to 20 days prior to issuance. If you know what to observe and you take action in time, you can hopefully prevent it. Uh, that being said, some colonies are just going to be swarmy. Maybe it's the genetics of the bees. Maybe they've had too much of a head start. And no matter what you do, you're really just not going to stop them from executing their privilege. Uh, that being said, most times you can usually step in if you know what you're doing and take care of it. Now, in order for a colony to swarm, you have to think about the big picture. If you're standing in front of a box wondering if that thing is going to swarm away in early spring, one of the key signs is what's going on at the entrance. If the thing is flying like crazy, then chances are it has the meat and potatoes, the things that it needs. And what does it need? It needs a healthy hive. Nature demands that it be a working, fully functional, established colony. You don't typically see runty hives swarm. They're trying to survive coming out of winter. They're not candidates. Now... If you want to have a swarm, thinking of it from the colony perspective, and you're going to leave daughters behind as the queen flies off with the swarm, then you'll need boys in the neighborhoods to, to mate up with the new queens. So drones have to be there. And obviously daughters have to be there. In the grand scheme of things, what happens when a swarm issues? A bunch of bees go. So you need enough bees to go but you also need enough bees to stay. And those bees are made up of a mix of ages. If you think about it this way, they have to go off to a new place and build comb. Then they're going to need new fresh bees that recently emerged and their wax glands are developed so that they can build comb. One way to do this is just read the colony. When you look at your colony, is it one of those strong, booming colonies when you take the roof off on a nice, warm, late March day, early April, and there's bees all over the place, and when you go to try to replace the inner cover, you have to keep shooing them off the edges so you don't crush bees? Or is it this tiny little cluster dinking along, some bees are flying here or there? 
Obviously, you could figure out which one of those is going to be a swarm candidate. And almost universally, one of those hives that are spilling over has all the conditions you need. You don't even need to go into the box. In this case, now you have a suspicion. You have to look for the triggers. Some of the triggers are obvious, and some of them you probably can't see. A couple of them to consider. Obviously crowding both bees and resources. One you may not be aware of is worker motivations and the queen signals to the workers. There could be a chemical communication breakdown. I'll explain what that is. It just could be, as I've said a moment ago, genetics. And then the funny thing is, as you stand there and inspect the entire colony, when do swarms happen? There has to be the right amount of light and it has to be the right amount of weather. So you could just look at the actual conditions. And for our area here in New Jersey, it's the forsythia bloom. Almost universally when swarm season kicks off, you could ride around the neighborhood and look and see forsythia just wide open that bright neon yellow plants screaming from everybody's yard. Breaking these down just slightly, let's talk about crowding. I, I always envision this crowding thing as two forms. The first one is just a simple overabundance of bees. If you think about all the bees that are vertical down in the cells when they come out and then they're now horizontal to the face of the comb, there's just bees all over the place. Then they're constantly bumping into each other. And that sensation of, excuse me, pardon me, coming through constantly has to have some sort of mental psyche for the bees that some of you have to go. There's no room to work when it's like that. The other crowding is as soon as that nectar flow starts to break, as soon as those trees start to pop, as soon as those flowers start to emerge in all the yards, there is an onslaught of nectar, onslaught of pollen. Those things signal good days ahead, and the foragers are going to go out and grab as much of that as possible. It's like party time, and bring it back. If you've not done anything, and they're packing it in every corner and cupboard that they can find, they'll eventually start packing it into the brood chamber. If you've ever pulled out a frame that was fully capped brood from the early season, and as soon as the bees emerged, they put nectar in it, you know what I'm talking about. They will physically try to fill every single open cell with whatever they can, you know, find space to put stuff in when it's there. They're that greedy about it. And of course, that crowding of all the comb is a trigger. If there's no place to put stuff, especially, and you have idle bees, the idle bees are going to start shaking everybody and say, come on, we need to get with the program. We're wasting our opportunity. And that leads to worker motivations. One takeaway is a colony is a complex ecosystem. We all think the queen drives everything. The queen's really just an egg-laying machine. She doesn't necessarily drive all the decisions. As we was talking about, workers influence the direction of the colony. With congestion comes more bees than jobs. 
Forgers returned with resources, no place to store it. This leads to a backlog of workers. Workers are constantly being replenished when they wear themselves out because they have, let's say you put honey supers on and those workers are going, they have two, three weeks and they're done and the new foragers will take over. When the new foragers don't take over because the workers can't put place things in place and there's a backlog of workers coming through the system, it's a disruption to the colony. There's some 21 jobs if you sat down and actually listed out all the things that bees could do and that disharmony of what bees are doing that's supposed to be driven by colony needs, it's changed with crowding. Now workers require pheromone and there's different kinds of pheromone that go on inside the hive. The chemical scents that come from the queen to say I'm your queen and lock everybody together, get transported by the queen's court out to all the bees. There's also footprint pheromone of her walking around. If that pheromone's not making its way to all the bees, because it simply just can't distribute, there's too many bees, then eventually bees that have not come in contact with the queen, pheromone, will come in contact with the queen later on. If she detects bees that do not have her pheromone on it, that's kind of a trigger, they say, to her. That is a reason, I've been told, that the queen will go lay in queen cups and begin a swarm procedure where the queen starts to, you know, gear up. Now, there's other schools of thought that say the workers sequester the queen, skinny her down, and prep her for flight. The takeaway here is workers have motivations and they often play a very big factor in swarm preparation and the actual issuance of swarms. But make no mistake, the pheromone communication of the queen, the pheromone communication of the brood that's being reared, there's tons and tons of it at this time. All of that stuff plays a role in the chemical makeup and send signals to the bees which make them behave in certain ways. If I turn from triggers to indicators, I can look at things like congestion. Again, another indicator. Queen cells, especially ones that have jelly. These are things that you're going to say that say, okay, this swarm thing is that the switch has been thrown. There's going to be a swarm. Early appearance of drones and white wax means conditions are favorable. You need the boys, and the white wax tells you that the young bees are there that can go build new comb. There's one that you don't physically see, but you should know about, and if you're tracking this, it's the queen's age. If the queen is older, and she is less virulent than a super new fresh queen, she may potentially be a better candidate for swarming. And she'll want to leave the colony with a fresh new queen. And again, the appearance, if you could see it, they might be prepping her, skinnying her down for flight because she hasn't flown since her nuptial flights. There's a late indicator for you. I want you to hear this one. It's called listlessness. Listlessness. 
When all the bees are prepping to fly out for a swarm, in the just day or day before, day two before, they're going to eat quite a bit. They have no idea where their journey is going to take them or how long it's going to take them to get there. So they fill their honey crops and they get prepped. And in that context, you'll find that bees that were super industrious one day all of a sudden seem odd. You'd be standing at the entrance looking to the left and this one's flying like crazy. The one to the right flying like crazy and this one's just kind of meandering. There's a couple of bees coming and going, not much going on. If you're really late into this, and I've seen this in a couple of years, you pull the frame up and you see bees running all over the place trying to get each other excited for the flight. Put that frame back together, put the roof on it, and next thing you know, within an hour, everybody's out of the hive and they're flying away. So indicators, there's late indicators, early indicators, but you know, obviously if you see massive congestion drones and white wax, you're pretty much on target. Now, you've seen all this, you know it's coming, what do you do about it? The first thing that most people do as an early preventative measure, and this is old school, but people still do it, is a reversal. Coming out of winter, the bees are up in the top box, you're going to take the bees in the top box and put them in the bottom box. You just switch the boxes. You move the top box to the bottom, take the bottom box, put it up to the top. In a Kevin moment, I would say before you do anything with that bottom box, go through the comb. And if there's anything bad in there, get rid of it. Call that comb. You don't want your bees moving up into crappy form comb, really old comb, and since it's empty, it's a good time to swap it out if you have that opportunity. Now, one of two things could happen, and I want to give you this warning. Sometimes the colony is so big, coming out of winter, that they span the boxes. Don't do reversals on those. You'll split the brood in half. Part of the brood will be to the top, under the roof, and part of the brood will be down on the bottom. And if you get cold, chill days, which we tend to have, here in New Jersey at least, that top part will get chilled and they may actually abandon it and set the hive back. If the colony is so big that it occupies the space, just leave them be. They'll grow down. I know bees move up, but they also move down. They move sideways. Think about a top bar and some of the other things, nadering uh, a waray hive. And the other thing that happens is you're too late. You decide you want to do a reversal, but you wait a little while, and the colony actually grew enough that they start to occupy and use the bottom box. Just leave it be. Don't, do, don't force a late reversal. Now, it's unusual for you to get to the point where you have to do brood expansion most times, when you're getting into this situation, you're going to want to put your honey boxes on because the nectar flow is coming and what they really need is storage expansion. However, there are two brood expansion techniques that you can use if you find that you just have this massively booming colony in two boxes and you want to make them three. By the way, when they build to three, that's an ideal candidate for making a nice split. The first one is 
you put a third box on the on the hive and you pull every other frame through the top box meaning what was the top box into the new box or you can center them all in the middle that's a pyramid in the brood expansion method where you're pulling every frame every other frame up you're creating channels and the bees will move up they don't like space between the brood combs and the queen will lay in them and occupy them as quickly as possible this technique where you're bringing every other brood frame up you want to employ that one when you know there's warm days ahead if there's any cold days don't do this because you're basically spreading the brood out and putting them at risk the better way to do it is to consider the pyramid method which is you pull the outside frames of the top box and you put them in the center of the new box that you put over so you picture the frame are full on the bottom didn't mess with them too much the second box the bees are centered in three four five six maybe seven and then the third box up top they're in four five six and it makes a pyramid shape if it does get cold at least they're all kind of clustered up and above each other in that pyramid approach and you can relieve congestion what the bees will find here is both going to aid the expansion of the brood nest if they want to do it but they also have storage area to the right and left now the most common way to relieve storage expansion is to put two boxes on top meaning two mediums or honey supers right away before the nectar flow this allows the bees to go up and walk around the comb it allows them to inspect the space get aware that the space is up there and also they are going to learn that when the nectar flow goes on they can roll right through and they have more than enough room one of the things that you can do with that situation is give them an upper entrance if they learn early too that they have an upper entrance they may forego coming into the bottom board crawling up through the crowded nest which is not what you want to have happen to store all the nectar above they can come right in through that upper entrance uh, be aware though that the whole colony could potentially want to switch and go to that upper entrance which isn't a bad thing but it is the way it goes sometimes so the most common things that people do in early spring to thwart swarming is to give more room to the brood nest and give more room for storage expansion there's a couple other things you can do both in the early season and through the season the first thing i'll talk about is if you have numerous hives you can do equalization you go over to that booming hive and you look at the runty hive next to it and you give it a boost you pull some of the resources but not the queen out of the booming hive preferably brood in all stages with the nurse bees who are loyal to the brood not the queen and therefore they'll be okay with the trip to the hive next door and you infuse your runty hive your moderate hive with some resources that might just be the kick in the pants they need in order to get them over the hump and get them to be a producing colony for you 
that equalization technique is a pretty good thing to do and it does distribute resources it doesn't hurt the big booming colony that much you can relieve congestion in the storage area through a checkerboard technique this is from Walter Wright it's been around for quite a while if you found that you had a colony that had a big cluster of bees and you did a reversal and they still had storage coming out of winter that honeydome of capped frames across the top of the box is somewhat a barrier to storage so you put another box on top and you pull every other frame up and create pathways through that top very similar to the method I talked about earlier for brood but this is the honeydome not the brood nest checkerboarding is completely about relieving stress in the storage area now that requires you to use a third deep box a lot of people don't like to do that for their honey storage but you know if that's something that you can do and you have the equipment it is an option most of the time what people do is distribute that honey to other hives or you can actually just pull it out and save it for later if you have full frames of capped honey especially if it's funny honey stuff that you fed them and that they packed in for storage you can pull it out put it in a freezer and later when the dearth comes you can feed it back to them and just give them fresh comb to work with drawn comb now mind you this is the best time of the year to give them foundation as bees are being built in the factory that is the brood nest in early spring during the massive forage you're going to have those bees that cross over into that six day old age or thereabouts where their wax glands are developed and instead of swarming you give them foundation to work on and they're happy little buzzy bees they just get to do whatever they need to do and you get to get new comb produced while still storing some uh, capped honey for later dearth times best time of the year no doubt hands down to get comb built now we talked about earlier the concept of just adding honey supers to the top when the honey supers get packed away you could keep putting honey supers on the top or you could actually draw them off and give them new ones and there's a bunch of different techniques and some say uh you know put the empty one underneath some say put the empty on top some say distribute the frames i just do it <laughs> i don't have a recommendation other than they need space and if you can give them drawing comb all the better there is a logical progression and i do i must admit bring some honey that's open up into the new box when i put it on top and I think they will go up there in order to close and dry that honey off and that does entice them to come up into that box. A one tip that I will tell you when you're doing any of these things where you're adding equipment is take the box and put it out in the sun. Warm the box up before you put it on the stack. Do your best to try and get it heated. You could even bring it in the house to get it warmed up. 
Uh, I think it will be more acceptable to the bees if it has a warm temperature to it. And, you know, I don't know. If you've ever stuck your head in a refrigerator and feel a cool change, you'll know that there's a difference in temperature change. And certainly the bees can get over that, but they will sense it. Now let's come back to congestion. The obvious answer for congestion is somebody's got to go. And the age-old prospect of this, getting to splits, is to make a split, an artificial swarm. In this case, let's say you're gonna, you're standing in front of a two-deep colony and the thing is booming and you want to make a split. There's drones presence, there's white wax presence, but there's no queen cells yet, which is a good thing for you. You're going to take a queen after you find her, which sometimes is a challenge, I'll get to that in a second, and move her to a nuke on a frame. You're going to supply her with some brood in all stages or cap brood, at least one honey, one pollen frame. It doesn't have to be a single honey and a single pollen. It can be a frame that's mixed. There's different schools of thought of making a five-frame nuke. Sometimes you give them four frames and an empty frame for growth. Other times you pull five frames out of the mother colony with the queen in those resources. And you replace those frames in the mother colony with drawn comb or foundation. Let me say that one more time just to go doggy ducky horsey slow through it so I didn't confuse everybody because split seems to be a mystical topic for some. You're going to take a frame with the queen on it. It's almost always the case that the queen is wandering around on a brood frame because she's laying eggs. You're going to take the queen, that frame of brood, and all the nurse bees, and you're going to put it in the nuke. You're going to source one frame that has honey on it. Whether it's open or capped, it doesn't matter. A mix of both is probably better. You need some pollen to feed the brood that you're taking over, so you need a frame that has some pollen on it. Fresh is better. And then whatever other resources you want to bring in, Another brood frame would be nice. Two brood frames that way. And what I try to do, if I can do it, is I try to pull a frame of open brood that they're going to have to work on to finish and cap. And I pull a frame of capped brood that is ready to go. And the capped brood is going to emerge and be the future workforce in short order and help that queen out. And then you can get to a double deep five frame nuke very quickly. And ideally what you're trying to do is build this colony and give it its best chance to get to full size through the nectar flow before July 4th comes in our case. Giving them the right resources up front, not leaving them skinny, will help them achieve that objective. Now you're going to deplete the other hive but you're going to prevent them from flying away. They're going to have to raise a queen, which will set them back for a while. So you may or may not have a honey force, but they didn't swarm away. Now, 
The obvious answer is you could supply them a fully mated queen at that juncture. And if that queen gets in there and gets to work, that colony will recover fast enough that it'll be productive during the nectar flow. So to each his own, do you want to let them raise their own daughters, which they will do if they have brood in all stages in the mother colony, they'll make queen cells for you and they'll replace it. And by the time those queens take over what's going on, the swarm impasse will be gone. One more swarm technique to cover in this discussion. Actually, let me just say that one more conventional, semi-conventional swarm technique to cover. I got another one to come after this, which is unconventional, but a walkaway split. What exactly is a walkaway split? It's a split where you just split the boxes in half. You take the top box off of a two deep stack and you put it on a bottom board, give it a inner cover, give it a roof, and you walk away. There's a knock on this technique. A lot of people will say, the queens that come out of here are not the same as a good quality queen that you buy that has hygienic traits and so on. You're le really leaving it to chance that the bees are going to rear you a good queen. A recent study that I came across and just peroused basically said if the queens are being reared in the height of the season during the nectar flow, their quality is actually pretty good. Why the benefit of doing a walkaway split? Well, easy peasy is really the answer. Uh, you know, Bob Kloss sent me this picture one day. He was lamenting a moment where he was helping out someone and they had called him and said they wanted to do a split, but they couldn't find the queen. And there's a picture he sent me of him sitting with the box open and a frame in his hands. And he had said to me the frustration that he experienced was, and, and believe me, I've been there, uh, staring at frame after frame after frame of bees just chock full trying to find the queen and just not able to do it. It's a hard thing to do sometimes. Doesn't matter whether you're a green newbie or a master beekeeper, when the queen doesn't want to be found in a plethora of bees, it's hard to do. In this case, you don't care. One of those two boxes is going to have a queen. The other one's in the same boat as the des description we just said. They, they have, given the, you know, robustness of the box being full of bees. Brood in all stages in the other box. They'll raise a queen. Now, you could wait for a while, a week or so, and look for eggs. Look for the brood to begin again or keep going is probably the better way to do it. And then you know that one ended up with the queen. And if you don't see any eggs in inspection on the one box, then you have the choice of, again, letting the bees rear queens and you probably start to see queen cells or you can supply them a queen. And you're in the same boat as you were before. In the case of this, you're splitting them down to a single box. And yes, you'll have to build both of them up to two deeps. But that's not too difficult to do during the nectar flow season before the dearth comes. And certainly you can get both of these to an overwinter state by the end of the season. Now, I'm going to take a right-hand turn here and talk about 
What do you do when you're too late? You've had all these indicators. You've had all the triggers. And you come out and you find queen cells all over the place. You missed it. One of the approaches is to go through every single frame and squish the queen cells. You could do that. Don't recommend it. If you miss one, you're, you're not doing a good thing here. The funny thing about queen cells, you never know which one's going to win. You never know whether the first one's good quality or the middle one's good quality. You have no idea. As a human being, you can't read all that stuff. I kind of like to let nature run its course if you have queen cells and let them do their thing, especially if they're rearing them during the height of the season because they're probably well-fed, well-cared, everything that you want, fully developed glands in the nurse bees. They're healthy because there's not a lot of, you know, sick bees early in the season from Varroa mite, if that's what was going on. The better course of action with queen cells is to pull them out. There's a bunch of different techniques for this. The first one, and the most obvious one, is to do a Daymarie. You go through your box, scrupulously shake the bees off, find every single frame with queen cells, and you pull it out and you put it in a separate box. Then you take whatever is left of the colony and you put it on the bottom board with the queen. Now, obviously... When you're taking the queen cells, you don't want to take the queen here, which is counter to how you make a traditional split. But the gist is you've harvested so many resources out of the original hive. Along with all those queen cells that in essence, you've taken the wind out of the sails of this colony. Now, if that colony was dead set on swarming because they had queen cells and the queen leaves, then hopefully they have some brood to recover but I'll come back to that in a second. In the De Marie method, you take all those queen cells, put them in a box, and you put them above the original colony with some sort of divider. Typically, it's a two-screen divider. So let me illustrate what that sounds like. You had a two-deep box. You've pulled all the queen cells out of it, and you've put them in a new deep box. In the original two deep stack, you've centered all the brood and the queen down in the bottom and every frame that you pulled out that had queen cells, you replaced. Now, maybe you could put foundation frame, but it would be better to put drawn comb. You put a divider over top of that where the inner cover was and you put another box over it. It could be a box with foundation. It could be a box with drawn comb. On top of that, you put the box where you put all the queen cells and bees and you provide them with an upper entrance. Now in the De Marie method, I believe Mr. De Marie said, go through, kill all the queen cells. No, I screwed that up. Sorry, I mixed this up. Let me just make one correction. You put a queen excluder, not a double screen. I was looking at the picture of the other technique, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Queen excluder, so the bees could travel back and forth. 
But the gist here is that you're moving the queen cells and all that brood up to the top box and you're killing the queen cells and eventually whatever is there will emerge and they may try to make more queen cells but there's no eggs up there so they'll run out of resources to build queen cells and if you scrupulously go through that box every couple days and pinch any queen cells no new queens will emerge in the interim the regular queens down in the bottom getting a restart laying new eggs working with you know uh worker bees and drones and whatever in the time frame that it takes for all those queen cells to be squished and any other new queen cells to be squished and run its course and they run out of materials to build new queen cells the swarm pressures abate and you can eventually pull the queen excluder between the boxes and join everything back together as one big workforce. So sorry, I said double screen port. That's not what I meant. You're supposed to put a queen excluder through it. Hopefully you forgive me for that faux pas. Now let me talk about the other technique, the picture I'm staring at, which is you could use a double screen board or a Snellgrove board. And I'm, given how long this is going, I don't want to go into that. But in essence, you bring the queen cells up there and you divide this into a two colony hive. The bottom colony has the queen and the resources. The top colony has all the queen cells and the resources, but they're split between by the divider board. The different tactic here is that you're going to let them rear those queen cells and let a queen come out and go get mated. Now, at some point, you have a two-queen system. You have the original two boxes on the bottom and the new boxes on the top, and they've raised a queen up there. You have two choices here. You can split them at the divider and make a new colony out of what's on the top, or you can go down and pinch the original queen and remove the divider and allow the colonies to come together and the queen that got reared successfully up on the top takes over the colony and again over time the swarm pressures abate. Now sometimes people use a Snellgrove board which is a board that has all these different trapdoors front back sides and you flip them open so that they create an entryway into the box. There's different ways to use a Snellgrove board. In this case, you're just basically using it so that the top bees can get out and not be trapped up there. So Daymarie and Snellgrove, you can go look those up or this method that I talked about, two queen system on the web. I just kind of ran past them so you knew that those options were there. I'm not prescribing what I described as the best way to go about it. But there is one other thing that you could use and this is unorthodox, and now I come to the queen castle. Using a similar approach, but not putting them above the original one, go through your colony, which has queen cells all over the place, and pull all the queen cell frames out and put them in a queen castle. Now, a queen castle, most traditional ones, are like a regular deep box with dividers that run from the floor to the ceiling. And what it does is it creates, and, and a lot of queen castles have three chambers or four chambers. You can buy them in the catalogs. 
So let's pretend we're working with one that has three chambers. Each one of them has their own entrance. The one on the left exits out the left side of the box. The one in the middle exits out the front of the box. The one on the right exits out the right side of the box. Bees come and go unaware that the other chambers exist. And there's a separator wall between each of the chambers so that the bees cannot transform from one chamber to the other. So in essence, you have three small little hives running in one box. You go through your mother colony and you pull all your queen cells out and you distribute those with resources similar to making a split into your queen castle and you let them rear their queens. And then as each one of them rears a queen and the queen comes through, you can pull those three frame, two frame, whichever one you have, into a nuke and start separate hives. If something happens where the queen dies or swarms away in the original colony, you could pull one of these queen castle banks out and put it back into the mother colony. It's a form of a split using a queen castle, which is unorthodox use for a queen castle. But if you have that equipment, it makes it a multitasker, not a unitasker. The typical, more traditional queen castle thing is you go into your cell, you graft eggs. No. Damn. Why do I always do that? When Bob and I talk about this, it's like a Kevin moment. I always say eggs, and I know it's not eggs. It's larva. <laughs> And you rear them until they make queen cells, and then you put them in the queen castle with some resources. Well, this cuts to the chase. The bees did the rearing for you. That's the more traditional queen castle use. So that's kind of a neat idea, right? All right. I think this has run its course. There's one other thing I want to talk about, which is just the swarm got away. There are times when even the most diligent beekeepers miss it and a swarm flies away you either physically witness the swarm or you come back into the box and there's evidence that the queen is no longer there maybe your queen is marked and now she's not you've seen torn down queen cells whatever the case may be you you get the gist that the swarm has uh, gone and now you're left with the aftermath you really just need to keep an eye on that box the actual thing that we come back to is this is nature's way of reproducing and if they swarmed they likely had all the resources left over to rebound they don't leave themselves in a perilous state that being said though the daughter queen has to go out and get mated and you don't know if she's going to be consumed by a bird flying back after her nuptials you got to know if the hive is in trouble, and without a queen, you will see no eggs. And all the cells have older larvae, and or everything is capped. There'll be less bees over time. That's pretty normal. But if it continues to dwindle... One of the funny things you'll see in this condition is... When the bees don't have any brood to look after, they turn to good, honest, earnest work. They start to really pack in the honey and the pollen. Now, you'll know you're in a good way when you pull up a presentation frame for brood 
and the bees have everything prepped. And what I could describe this as, there's a hole in the center of the comb where everything is clean and shiny and prepped, and around it, there are resources stored with honey up in the corner. There may not be eggs, but all the bees look calm, and they're pretty sure and set the stage for the queen to start laying. If you see that, that's usually a good sign. If everything's in control and they've prepped that area, it means the queen is going to be there. Now, sometimes when the queen comes back, you'll see double eggs, triple eggs, piles of eggs in the bottom. She's just practicing, but eventually that's a good sign too because she'll start to lay. Now, if this goes on for a long, long time and you start to see eggs all over the place, then maybe you're in trouble and you have drone layers where the workers have not had enough queen pheromone and they start to lay eggs which of course they don't have the equipment to fertilize so you'll start to see drones pop up and everything will be duds blanks hopefully you're not waiting that long for that condition to take in if you find that your colony does not restart after a swarm go buy yourself a queen and put it in there or follow the guidance before and take one of the other splits that you made and put it in here and get it going. Swarms, swarm prevention in castles. How about that? That's the talk I gave last week. Uh, it's a combination, like I said, of a bunch of different talks. Let's see, where are we on time here? You know what? I'm going to jump, jump into how to hive a swarm real quick. Uh, first thing is if you're in New Jersey or other places, there's typically swarm lists that you can apply to so that people can find you. If you're going to go collect swarms, and this is going to be a dash through this, pre-plan. You need to have all the equipment you're going to want in order to collect a swarm ready to go at a moment's notice. When someone calls, you pretty much have to dash out of the house and go. You'll need storage vessels for the bees, spray bottles with sugar water, Bee suits, one for you and one for others. Maybe you'll have a swarm capture pole and a vacuum. Certainly blue tape should be in your kit. A bee brush and or feathers or things. You could go as far as setting up ladders and other more ambitious projects. You get it. You got to pre-plan everything. When you get the call, ask for the details. If you can, ask the person who's calling to confirm that they're bees to take a photograph. Now, don't get them stung doing this. That's not a good idea. But, you know, many times, more often than not, you're going to find that they're reporting yellow jackets. Ask them if they're in the ground or things like that. You don't want to drive out 40 minutes to some place only to figure out that they're not honeybees. However... In your kit, you should try to prepare something where maybe you can help them take down a hornet's nest or things like that. Be a good neighbor there. If you're out there, you might as well do what you can to help them. You have a bee suit, they don't, and they're going to call an exterminator. While you're on the phone with them, get a sense of access to the bees. Are they in the backyard? Can you drive your vehicle in? You know, what? what is the height of them? How big are they? You need to plan the vessel to capture them in. The worst thing that could happen is you show up with a five-frame nuke and the thing is bigger than that. What do you do with the excess bees? you got to go back home. When you get there, be a good ambassador. 
in the context of someone's graciously in a state of tizzy a lot of times and you're coming on their property. Explain to them what you're going to do. Explain to them who you are. Talk to them throughout the process. Give them a bee suit so they don't get stung and they feel comfortable. And one of the things is do as little damage as possible to the lawn, to the trees, to the whatever is going on there. They may tell you it's okay, but you need to ask. I went to someone's yard and they had this big, huge Christmas tree in the front. It was a beautiful pine tree, perfectly shaped. While I was working, setting up, they were telling me how they groomed this tree. It was very evident that they did not want me to clip a branch off and leave a hole in the middle of their tree. It would have given apoplexy to the person. You know, so if you're cutting branches off of something, it could be traumatic to the homeowner. Be a good ambassador. And, you know, again, uh, uh, times, you know, sometimes you could say to them, if you want to take pictures, go ahead, go grab a camera. They'll show up with an SLR and some of the best shots I have of swarms that I've done were shot by the homeowners and you give them a suit. Other ones are going to retreat to the house and they'll want nothing to do with it. Don't force them to stand there and watch. It's okay. When you arrive, do your assessment. Consider how you're going to get the bees into the vessel that you brought. Sometimes you could set their down low on the ground physically. I've had them on parking lot surfaces. They're hanging from a branch, a bush, a tree. They're way up. You got to use a swarm pole. Just run the entire plan through and figure out from start to finish all the logistics of I'm going to knock them in. I'm going to carry them over. I'm going to dump them in. I'm going to cover. I'm going to go get the strays, all of that. Ideally, one of the key things is to get the vessel underneath and or sometimes Contrary to what I was just talking about, you could clip the branch and bring it to the vessel, whether you're going to do it. And if you think about the situations you can encounter, they can be on the ground. They could be stuck to a, a mailbox hanging off of a car, clustered on the side, the bark of a tree. How do you get them off of there? You're going to have to get on a ladder and go up into the top of a pine tree, which is deep inside or something like that. All things are possible. Um, don't don't rule out if you have it a vacuum. Sometimes that's the best way to get out of those sticky situations. Now the typical pr- procedure is to do this: you get them in the vessel for transport. You confirm that you have the queen. You collect the strays. Stay long enough to get all of them. Don't leave bees behind. That's traumatic sometimes for for homeowners. And they're going to ask, what if you... Inevitably, you're going to leave strays. They almost always dissipate somewhere. I've had people call me and say, four days later, you know, there's still bees up there. When a swarm lands, they leave a lot of pheromone on a spot. And in time, they will always come back to that spot. And the bees that stay there will stay committed as long as that pheromone is on the surface. Now, what happens? I've seen it in my yard where they fly back to the other hive that they came from because they remember where they were, where they fly off into nature and who knows what happens to them. But do your best to collect all the strays. Don't leave them for the homeowner. In the transport home, obviously, you need to secure the box that you're putting them in. 
so that they can't get out. You'll load it in your vehicle and transport it. If you have a pickup truck, you're not too worried. But if you have an SUV like me, you're going to have bees flying around. When you have a box, even though it's sealed up and all the bees are inside, any of the bees flying around are going to land on that box. And they're going to be there for the ride home. And of course, as soon as you put them in the vehicle and start driving down the road, they're flying around inside your vehicle. Most of the time, they fly to the windows trying to get out. I usually look in the rearview mirror and watch them. They'll fly to the back window. They'll fly to the side back windows. Then they'll come up to the middle windows. And then eventually they'll make their way to the windows next to me driving. And sometimes even to the windshield. I don't usually fuss if it's a handful of bees. Two, three, four. If it's more than that, maybe the, the container shifts. You didn't do a good job and bees get out. Been there and done that. You could put on a bee suit. Pull over, put your bee suit on, get back in, drive home. Bees flying around inside. You're really not that much of a risk of getting stung. Now, if you have a handful of bees floating around and you're watching them come forward and you're starting to get nervous, just pull over, stop, open the side windows and let those bees fly out. It'll be okay. You'll get home sooner or later. Uh... Yeah, once you have the bees in a box, I'm going to come back to that. You're going to look to see whether you have the queen. How do you know if you have the queen? You really don't. But most of the times when you have the queen, the bees will fly and start to come out of the air and even fly down from wherever they were situated and get in your box. You can literally, at times, see them land on the ground and like the march of shoulders, soldiers walk right into the vessel that you have. You're looking for signs of the Nazanoff gland. The bees that know where the queen are typically scent by sticking their posterior in the air and fanning a scent that's the come here scent and all the bees will go in. If you've put the major cluster in, and they didn't immediately all escape and fly back to the cluster up on the tree. And they start to scent. Chances are you've had the queen. But if you knock bees down, sometimes the queen will fall to the ground. And there'll be a clump of bees around her. So if you've ever knocked a cluster off into a vessel and the bees fall down to the ground, always take a moment and wander around on your hands and knees looking for a clump. I did a swarm pole one from a tree about 20 feet up and knocked the bees down. And when the bees fell in the box, they fell in the box and on the ground, which there was a pool cover there, a nylon pool cover. And while I was wrapping everything up one day, I looked down over to the right side and there on the pool cover was a clump of bees and darn if the queen wasn't in that cluster. Now she was right next to the box where all the bees were scenting. So I would have thought the queen was in there, but obviously she wasn't. When you're transporting your bees home, make sure they have some sort of ventilation. If it's a short trip, they'll probably be okay. But anything longer than 10, 15 minutes, you're going to want to use a screen bottom board or a screen in the container or figure some way to allow them some air. Open the entrance, but screen it off. Blue tape is your friend. Straps are your friend. 
make sure you really secure them before you put them in your vessel. It'll be just your luck on the ride home that you'll have to slam the brakes on or take a sharp curve. I sometimes put a sign on the outside, say live bees inside. When you get home, put the bees, you, you really have two conditions. You've put them in some sort of hive container that you're going to leave them in, a nuke box, a, a deep, or you have them in a vessel, a bucket with a screen over the top and you have to dump them in. I typically would dump them into a hive box. Let's say I have a bucket with a screen on the top and all the bees are in there. One of the suggestions is do it late at night or in the twilight. And when you dump the bees in at twilight and cover them off at dusk, some might come out and orient, but most of them will stay in there on the overnight and that will keep them from absconding. It's super frustrating to get bees home, dump them in a box, come back the next morning and find out that they've flown away. Doesn't happen very often. Uh, usually when you give them a box with some comb, and this is a tip, you could pull a frame of bees, brood in all stages, no queen of course, out of one of your existing hives and put it in there. That almost always anchors them. They won't leave brood when they have a frame that's operational and they'll accept those bees. Now one thing I didn't talk about and you could do this both by collecting the cluster in the beginning or when you're going to put them in is to spray them down with sugar water. Obviously you want to do this on a warmer day. When you spray the bees it helps them to go in the box and not fly away because they're wet, they don't fly, and they also spend a lot of time grooming. Now, if you have this clump of bees hanging in a bush in front of you and you spray them down really, really well, and then you shake them into the box, obviously the only bees that got wet were the ones to the outside. So you're gonna anticipate that they're gonna be flying all over the place. It's not like you're gonna saturate the entire thing and they're all gonna fall in. Any bees that did get wet obviously will dry off in time and clean themselves up. They won't be harmed by this in any way. This same technique can be used at the end when you're going to dump a collection of bees. You take the lid off of your bucket and spray them down and then dump them in the hive. You could also use that sugar water to spray the interior of the hive and that sugar water will entice them to stay there as they clean things up. It is going to be swarm season any day now. And that's a dash through some ideas of how to actually collect a swarm. One of the best things to do if you're a complete newbie is to go with somebody. Uh, I remember collecting my first swarm from my boxes out in the yard, had absolutely no idea, called somebody up and he physically gave me the same thing I just did for you on the phone while I was doing it, blow by blow. I'd call him back every five minutes and go, okay, I have my collection now. I'm standing at the tree. What do I do next? It's fun. Enjoy it. <laughs> it's, uh, it is one of those lifetime experiences, especially your first one where you get to get that under your belt. Then after a while, it becomes a little more routine and you tend to know where the pitfalls are. Um, yeah. That's, that's, uh, I think it. So splits and castles and swarms. Oh my, this was a fun little talk that we gave 
and Bob did a great job on his part. And I think we were well organized and now you get to hear it. And again, youtube.com slash NWNJBA. If you wanted to go watch it, chances are that meeting. And when I did this, we put together a, a slideshow and there's tons of pictures. So if you want to revisit this again and see all the pictures that show what uh, the pole capture devices look like and spraying the bees and, you know, the different forms of on the ground, the bioladder and all that stuff, we have photographic evidence of all of the things I just described, including what the pictures look like for doing Queen Castle moves and things like that. So, uh youtube.com slash nw and jba look for swarms castles split swarms and castles or something like that that'll be the label for it local hive report you know actually not too much to report the funny thing is we had a couple warm days there in early march and now as we come to the tail end it's turned cold again it's one of those typical new jersey springs you get a little taste, you think spring is coming, you see the crocus come up, everything does fine, and then wham, a cold front comes in, blows in from the north, and it's cold again. Low of 20-something the next two days, high of around 45, cloudy, not very bee-friendly weather. There's really not much you can do. This puts us in that position where the bees are in there doing their thing and when they have enough population they're going to start building their population then all of a sudden the weather's going to break and the hives are going to explode and there'll be swarms all over the place i feel like the colonies that we have uh, going right now with the exception of the one in the out yard which i haven't taken a peek at yet are moderate in size there's no booming colony so i don't believe that i'm in some immediate jeopardy based on what we just talked about for you know massive swarms occurring right away i do have one plan which is one of the nukes that i have in the six frame polystyrene hive i'm going to move into one of the bigger boxes right away what i learned last year is i tried to add additional six frames to the six over six that overwintered and even when i had it four stacks high it swarmed so that game plan, I'm not going to run again. As soon as I get a couple warm days in a row, I'm going to transfer the guts out of the six-frame polystyrene hive and put it in a full-size colony with drawn comb and resources and let it grow into a full-size colony, which it'll do in short order. One of the questions I have is, what about sampling and mite treatments? I don't have anything in the wings other than oxalic acid I could do that at any given time but typically I have supplies of Formic Pro available I'm not using Apivar so I guess I better get on the stick if I'm going to use Formic Pro in the next couple of weeks I'm going to have to go buy some or order some right away so talking through this with you is actually kind of beneficial sometimes uh, for the most part I expect spring to be spring I do plan to do splits, and one of the things we're going to do is queen rearing early. So I'm actually going to divide my time, make sure the hives don't swarm, make splits where I want to, and get to queen rearing in early April, right at the beginning of the nectar flow. That's the local hive report plan. 
and I'm sticking to it. We'll see if things change. Uh, but for right now, I think we're in a good place. Also, uh, again, to what we just talked about, I guess I need to prep my swarm kit. I don't know. Last year was just the most amazing swarm year ever on record. It was astonishingly good. Um, hmm. Will it be the fifth or sixth year in a row, whatever the count is, where Hive moves into the Breezeway swarm box? I, I don't know. But whatever it is, I guess I need to prep for swarm season. April 15th is right around the corner. So local Hive report, it's cold. There's not much going on. Bees are just hunkering down. Hopefully uh, they're going to get those warm days ahead. And looking at the forecast pushing out, Next Thursday, it's the first day where I see we'll have a reasonably comfortable day. 60 degrees. That was like a, what the heck happened there? 60 degree day, slow down, Kevin, with 45 as the low. That's usually my threshold. When I see 45 as low and it's warmer than 45 on any given nights, we know that it's game on time. All right, local hive report, not too much to report there. We'll leave it at that. So closing comments for this episode. Yeah, the release date. What a mess. Between losing power last Sunday and uh, changing things up, as you're about to hear, I'm behind schedule. The good news for you is you're going to get two episodes instead of one. What am I talking about? Originally, for the feature on this, I had recorded a pretty in-depth topic about dealing with dead outs. I felt like the dead out segment that I did not too long ago was just a flash past. And I always wanted to do a full length from roof to bottom board dead out uh, coverage. What should you do? You know, there's a bunch of different advice out there. Some of it's good. Some of it's okay. Some of it's kind of ridiculously anemic. And I felt that while I'm in my managementering mode where I'm trying to create guides for people to follow, it would be a good idea to do a study on how to do a proper, proper what, what I do, um, dead out, review, hive autopsy, a necropsy. And so I recorded one and put a tremendous amount of energy producing it, only to find out it was so long that it just couldn't fit in a normal episode. With this episode running longer, believe me, with the necropsy in it, it was over two hours, which is absurd for an episode. It's bad enough that this thing's an hour and a half. So here's what I'm going to do. I pulled that segment out and I'm going to release it as... A separate episode. It'll be episode 208. So you're going to get this one. And on its heels. As soon as I can produce it. Post it. Put it up in the cloud. You'll have 208. Back to back. I actually want to be timely about this. So as this one gets released. The other one will be quickly. Because you know. Dead out season is going to run away from us here. I get a little bit of a reprieve for those of us in the Northeast or Mid-Atlantic region because it's still cold and I know a bunch of beekeepers that I talk to haven't done their dead outs yet. And even if you have, you're going to hear that if you've just run through it, uh, listening to what I have to say I think would be beneficial to replay it and think about how you might do it differently in the future.
So, episode 207 comes to a close, and 208 will be forthwith. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be well.